What we're going to look at tonight, as I mentioned in the other room, is the story of Dayenu, but really, we're going to try to figure out what the main story of the Haggadah is, and I want to propose that Dayenu is, is one of the many attempts to tell that story. Okay, so what we're going to really first focus on is, what is the story? What is the task of what we're meant to tell in this telling night? And then, in what way does Dayenu sort of um, tell that story in, in ways that are different from other parts of Haggadah that are also trying to answer that question? So, in order to do that, we're going to go um, right back to the source, which is the, um, the, uh, the Mishnah in, in the last chapter of, um, of Psachim. Um, where the, the, the you know the so the whole question of how old the Haggadah is, but one answer to that question is well the Haggadah is as old as at least as old as the, this chapter of the Mishnah because the chapter of the Mishnah um, sort of organizes for us what we're supposed to do um, during the seder. So whether the, there's a whole fight about whether the Mishnah um, is just reporting practices that are much, much older, or whether um, it's something that they were just dealing with in, um, in their own contemporary times first. Um, that's, um, yeah, you got more. Yeah, hold on. Okay. Um, that's part of what the goal of the mission is, is to give you our first Haggadah, our first order. And what's the organizing principle of the, of the Mishnah? What's the, uh, the, main, the main thing, according to the Mishnah, that they're really focused on in terms of uh, markings? Like, how do I know I'm at the next section in the Mishnah? Wine. I'll give you a hint. What's that? Wine. wine. Exactly, right? We start off by saying that you need four cups of wine. Everybody needs four cups of wine, even if you're um, taking from the soup kitchen. And then we run through what happens at the first cup, the second cup, the third cup, etc. So the second cup is the cup where we're actually starting to tell the story. And that's what I want to pick up here um, at, the, um, at the top of the page uh, on the source sheet, okay? So, Mazgulo Kos Sheni, they pour for him a second cup. Vikan Haben Shoel, and here, or in some uh, versions, Vikan Haben Shoel, but the words are the same. And here, or in thus, the, the, the son asks, period. <laughs> okay? So apparently the Seder, the Haggadah starts with the child asking a question. What question do they ask? Not clear. Okay, just ask. And then, Now what you're saying is, if you know the Mishnah, you'll know, you'll, this is familiar to you, if there's no dot, if there's no knowledge or consciousness or however you want to translate dot, no, no intelligence maybe, with the child, then the father instructs him. Now, in the oldest versions of the mission, actually, you have to just cross out the word aim. So it reads, V'im dat v'den aviv milamdo. Like, if the child actually can handle learning, so then the father teaches him. Okay? But, so that kind of makes a big difference. But either way, the way it's supposed to work is the child asks a question. If the child is either at a certain level or below a certain level, the father then instructs. And how does the father instruct? Then you have the manishtana. Okay? So the manishtana follows this. And we're not going to get into Maimon Shana. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. There's different versions. Um, the oldest version only has three questions. Um, but what we want to really focus on is what happens next. So four lines from the bottom um, in, in either the Hebrew or the English. Sort of a restatement of what they said above. According to the dot of the child, the father instructs him. And what does he instruct? This is the part we need to uh, tune in for. Machil b'genut u'misayim b'sheva. All right, just stop there. Start with genut, 
and finish with Sheva. How would you translate Gnud? What do you think? Shame? Yeah, shame or... Embarrassment? Yeah, embarrass. Um, humiliation. Right, humiliation. Disgrace. Okay, some version of that. And how would you translate Sheva? Praise. Praise. Okay. Um, this is, what I want to argue, these four words is what the Haggadah is trying to do. The Haggadah is trying to tell us how we move from Gnut to Sheva. That's the whole thing. Now, the question is, how might you move from Gnut to Sheva? So let's try to define some of our terms. We tried it with translation, but let's just actually try to fill in the blanks. If you were going to tell the arc of the story from Gnut to Sheva, what are my potential starting points and what are my potential ending points? There's some famous ones. There's some less famous ones. We're just, let's just throw out a whole bunch of them, okay? So what is the point of disgrace or shame that you might start with if you're telling the story about Phil Bignut and Mishayim B'Sheva? What's one possible Gnut? Enslavement. Sorry? Enslavement. Enslavement. Can I use that now? Thank you. Okay. So one possibility is slavery, right? And what's the other side of this? Of this what's the Shevach of the slavery Gnud? Freedom. Freedom, okay. So when would this start? When does the slavery begin? In Egypt. Yeah, in Egypt, after the, the, the new king arises, and Joseph, we're familiar with that story. Okay, this is classic, right? If you, like, stop people on the street and say, what's the story of Passover? Oh, slavery to freedom. Okay, good. Let's come up with other ones. What's, what's another Gnud starting point? Not having like a central Torah like way of having a religious life. Okay, so no, no Torah or religious life. And then going to like a, a unified communal system that everyone's kind of on the same page and able to work through. Okay, unified religious life is that fair? Okay, when does when does the no Torah happen? In the Israeli report. Okay. It's all the way running up until, and then when is the Sheva? And then Har Sinai. Har Okay, so now the end is when he actually gets to Sinai, which is, you know, a year plus after um, the Exodus. Okay, so we're just trying to think, like, when is the story end? Okay, so the end of the story year, what's the end of the story year? Seder is Pesach night, day, whenever that's all the fight, okay, but leaving Egypt, okay? Here it's a year later when they get the Torah. Um, what else? Where else might you begin and end? Yeah. Before having land in Israel. Okay, right? There's no land. And then when you actually get into Israel. So this is um, a... Well, how long... Where does this start? No land. Sorry? Okay, right. With Abraham, who is promised land, but doesn't actually inherit the land. Right? And, and then... Um, all, oh, but maybe it sort of starts in earnest once they go down to Egypt, but before they're enslaved. They actually leave the land. That's, that, that's the promised land. And then it ends long after, four years after the exodus of Israel. Any other, any other possible... Ganud and Sheva. Yeah. Yosef being sold down to Israel. Okay, great. Yeah. Is that the beginning of slavery, or that's just the Ganud of, like, our core sin? Or either... I don't know, I mean, it starts the core process by which we ultimately end up in Israel. Okay, great. There's, there's sort of like the domino effect starts with the sale of Yosef. What would be the end of that? His bones being brought up. Okay, maybe, so good. Maybe it's bringing up the bones of Yosef. Any, any other, you want to take that way into the future? 
Okay, when we conquer the land, why is that the inverse of, of uh, selling Joseph into slavery? Okay, maybe you're at Yosef's descendants, maybe you have a place in the land. You want, anyone else want to go, go farther? Yeah? Well, I know about the farther part, from, from, from paganism to belief in, in, in God. Okay, great. I'm going to add that right here. And you, that might be a version of what you were saying with the, um, with the Torah, although not necessarily, because when does the paganism start? That goes way back. Way back. I think it's in the Haggadah. Yeah, okay, that's also in the Haggadah, right? It's Raoul's opinion. And we, when does it end? When is the point when the Jewish people actually stop becoming idolaters? <laughs> this is like my, my friend who said, uh, my friend who said, wow, okay, it's like super high. Um, my friend who said that um, the, the, first, uh, the first DIY Jewish community, do-it-yourself Jewish community, built the golden calf. <laughs> it's like, they were alone for <laughs> 10 seconds, and bam, they're back to their old, their old ways. Okay, um, so maybe never. Uh, it's certainly a sign curve in that relationship. What will be the, what will be the first part? Where, where's like the, okay, this is like a part. Okay, Abraham, right? So maybe this is like pre-Abraham, and it's with Abraham. What about in the, in the generation of Moses? What's that moment of, of becoming a monotheist? Shema or Shema. Right, Shema is how we pronounce our monotheism, but what about like in the narrative? When it says, Right? First they don't trust Moshe or don't, don't really believe that anything's going to happen. And then the sea is actually, and this might be what John's talking about, the sea is the core original revelation. Right? Ze'eli. They see God. They point to God. And the Midrash says that all the babies, you know, who are, who are sucking at their mother's breast actually pull off the breast and say, that guy, I remember him, mm-hmm. right? They, they, they see God. So there's, uh, there's a, this moment of recognition becoming um, a monotheist. But as you said, that could also be with Abraham, right? Let's just get back. Wait, what's the end of the sale of, of, of Yosef? Well, anyone want to go super, even super farther? The, the other side of the sale of Yosef, you might remember from Yom Kippur. Right? How is the, how is the sale um, expunged? It's through the death of the ten martyrs. Right? They are accused of um, selling uh, the ten martyrs equated to the ten brothers of, of Joseph, right? Excluding Benjamin, who sold him into sa- into slavery. They are the kapara. They are the stand-in for these brothers who were never punished for a death penalty offense. Right? You cannot kidnap someone and sell them and then say I'm sorry. Actually, like the Torah just straight up says, you're, you're punished with death. So that could all, all the way go to um, the Ten Martyrs, which would then take the story very far. Okay. Um, any, any other, any other genut to Shevach? Yeah? So maybe, I know we have like Torah and Hashem on there, God on there, but like actually quality of spiritual wellness. So like, I don't know, maybe the 12 tribes would be the starting point, and then Mashiach would be the end point. Okay, great. Um, spiritual wellness, so 12 tribes, that's like a spiritual... High point is... But, but okay, we're going to start with a low point. Oh, a low point. So, so we'll be a low the point. End of the 12, well, the 12 tribes, this shouldn't degrade. Like, the generation after the 12 okay. tribes. Okay, the, the dissolution. Exactly. And then, we're, and then you're getting to Messiah. Okay, yeah. good. You know, this would put it also into a, not a story that is done, but a story that is unfolding. Mm. Okay? Now, I, I think that we can actually spend a lot of time coming up with even more... Um, versions of the Gnut Shabbat, but what I want to see is, even right now we have six versions, only two of them are mentioned in the Talmud directly, although we'll see that a third of them 
A third one may be also hiding there, at least in the Yerushalmi. Um, but I think the Haggadah is actually trying to answer this question by bringing text after text after text that is trying to understand why, um, what the terms Gidun and Shevach are, and that is the telling. Okay? That is what it means, and that's why the Seder is long. <laughs> because when you're trying to answer this question, you actually have multiple possibilities. And that's why it took them all night long, and it was only until Kriyat Shema, by the way, you can link that to one of the endpoints, right? They're sitting there and saying Kriyat Shema, because it took them all night to just try to figure out what is the move from Ganut to Sheva? Okay? So let's just see where a couple of these play out um, in the story, and then we're going to get to, to Dayenu. Okay? So let's just read the end of the Mishnah, because the Mishnah seems to maybe answer the question itself. So the Mishnah says, we said, so I'm, I'm in the fourth line from the bottom. And then, And then they do, how would you translate, Vidoresh? Expound, right? With like a technical term. They say, they take verses and they do a midrash on them. They try to understand what the verses mean from Arami Obedavi until the whole section is finished. Okay? Now, let's try to figure... So, just again, this is a... This is a, what I'm trying to posit is there are many ways to read things. Okay? There are also many ways to read this Mishnah. You can read it in a couple ways, at least. One way is, full stop, new sentence, and something else you have to do on Seder night is do a drasha from Arami Obedavi until you finish the entire section. Okay? Or, you could read it as, this is what it means. You want to know what it means to go from Gnut to Sheva? Here's how you do it. You start from Arami Obedavi and you finish the entire section and that will get you to the Sheva side. Okay? So that's not totally clear. If it was clear, the Gemara wouldn't have a debate about what we're supposed to do from Gnut to Shemach, but they do. So let's just take a look at that or Parsha. It yeah. was clear when they said the whole Parsha. Sorry? Or it was clear when they actually finished the whole Parsha, but when they stopped finishing the Parsha, it became less clear. If you don't say the end of Arami Ovid Avi, Good. then you have to come up with new paradigms for Gnut and Shemach. Okay, great. So, so uh, um, um, you can shoot, when you start with Arami Oveda V, you have to figure out where to stop. The Mishnah tells you where to stop. It's not the same point that the Haggadah stops. And that also leads you to understand the framing in a different way. So let's just see, let's just look at this Parsha, okay? So first of all, note, when do we say, when did the Jewish people say Arami Oveda V? I'm on the bottom of page 1, 1A. So we're in Deuteronomy 26, almost the end of the Torah. When you enter the land that Hashem your God is giving to you as a heritage, and you possess it, and settle in it, you shall take some of every first fruit of the soil which you harvest from the land that Hashem, your God, is, turn the page, giving you, put it in a basket, and go to the place where Hashem, your God, will choose to establish His name. You shall go to the priest in charge of the time and say, I acknowledge this day before Hashem, your God, that I have entered that land that Hashem swore to our fathers to assign us. The priest shall take the basket from your hand, set it down in front of the altar of Hashem, your God. You shall then recite as follows before Hashem, your God, Arami Obedavi. Where are we? We're in the temple period. We're in the temple period, and what, what time of year is it? Bikurim, which is when? Shavuot. Shavuot, okay? This is a text that's recited on Shavuot, okay? And how does the text begin? The, the, um, it's kind of short. It starts in the middle of Pasuk He, and it finishes in Pasuk Tet. Let's just see what, what you're supposed to say. 
And what I want you to do is, when, when I'm reading it, what's the Genut and what's the Sheva? Okay? Arami Avi, my father was a wandering Aramean, or an Aramean tried to destroy my father. Starting point. He went down to Egypt with meager numbers and sojourned there. But there he became a great and very populous nation. The Egyptians dealt harshly with us and oppressed us. They imposed heavy labor upon us. We cried to Hashem, the God of our fathers, and Hashem heard our plea and saw our plight, our misery, and our oppression. Hashem freed us from Egypt by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm, awesome power, signs, and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now I bring the first fruits of the soil which you, Hashem, have given me. That's the end of the quote. Okay? Now where does the parasha end? Parasha is a technical term. Parasha ends, the Torah doesn't have any punctuation, but it has paragraph breaks. Right? So where does the paragraph break show up? Right here at the bottom page in verse 11. So I'll just read the last two sentences. You shall leave it, the basket, before Hashem your God, bow low before Hashem your God, and you shall enjoy together with the Levite and the stranger in your midst all the bounty that Hashem your God has bestowed upon you and your household. That's the end of the parasha. Okay, according to this, what is the Gnut and what's the Sheva? What do you think? Yeah. Say well, the first one is that my father was wandering and like with meager numbers he went down to Egypt and then he became great and populous. Okay, good. So one possibility which we didn't have. So we have the, the wandering, the no land idea, but now we also have a numbers, right? Few numbers and now very big. Okay, it's just simply a, this is like the Stephen M. Cohen version of the Haganah. We started some of the demographers, okay? Inside joke. Okay, yeah, so... Start small and big. That's the, the Gnud and Sheva. What's the other one that you see? That the Egyptians, Egyptians were dealing harshly, oppressed us, and then God saved us and brought us out of that. Okay, so that might be a version of slavery to freedom. Yeah. Okay? Slavery, which is a synonym for uh, oppression. Okay, not just hard labor, but also oppression. Okay, what else? Any other ones you see here? Um, there's the general wandering, and then there's some sort of temple, or there's a place where God is, where God chooses. Good, right. We have the end point here is the temple. Okay, so that's a, maybe a subset of the land, right? We have Israel here, but now we actually have, within Israel, we have the temple, and what's the other side of that? The first part? There's no temple. Yeah, right, the sort of wander, but no temple side of wandering. This and is, and no, no, no place to meet God. Good, right, no central place to meet God, no, no meeting point there. Any other things you see? Yeah? Um, from being someone in a foreign land to welcoming the foreigner. Ah, love it. Right? If you get to the end of the parsha, what is the actual act? Now it's not the saying that you're saying, but it's the act that you're doing. Right? So you were a wanderer, and now you were a... Actually, but you have the idea. I'm a sojourner in this land, and now I'm welcoming the ger as somebody who needs to be fed. So it's the, um, the shevach is actually some form of feeding or caring for others when you were actually a ger on this side. The ger stays constant, but the, the identity shift of who's owning that um, is here. Any other um, yeah. beginning and ending? Yeah. The, from the individual to like <coughs> people, the concept of people. Ah, okay, good. Right, that you are you are going from um, individual to a nation. Right? Paro is the first one who calls us Am, but here's the, the Goy Gadol. We're, we're sort of telling our own story we become, become a nation. Okay? So now we've just added like another three or four beginnings and endings. And again, if the mission... You want to add one more? Uh, prosperity. 
sort of not having anything to having all of the Good, right? Exactly, right. I have um uh, yeah, no food, right? I'm a I'm, I'm a slave, uh, slave, and now I have bikurim. I have so much bounty that I can actually bring first fruits here, and I can share it with the, with the stranger, right? So, so you can come up with even more beginnings and endings. So, in some ways, if the Mishnah was telling you how to do Gnut Tesheva by giving you this section of the Torah, actually, it's just giving you another version of the same problem, which is to say, there are many versions of there are many ways you could start with Gnut and end with Sheva. Okay, and that's all encoded here. And again, if we spent more time with this text or with each other, I'm sure we'd come up with even more. Okay, but we have a lot. This is my point. I'm trying to make the point here is that there are many understandings of Gnut Tesheva. You generated them here. Let's see what the Talmud generates. Okay, so let's just take a look at that. Um, look at the bottom of page two. And we're getting to Dayatim. It's coming up. Okay? Machil Begnut, because we have to sing it. Machil, not really. So now the, the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, is taking this section of the Mishnah and is trying to understand it. So they ask, my Bignut, okay? What is this starting in Gnut? So now we have um, two responses. Rav Amar, Michila, Gilulim, or okay? Which you recognize from. Sorry? Exactly, right? Right? That's the section of the Gata where they introduce Aramio Vedavi. And the Aramio Vedavi was, how is that related? Why, why is that the proof text of my, uh, um, our ancestors were idol worshippers? What does the wandering Aramean have to do with my, my ancestors were idol worshippers? In the Haggadah, the Levin tried to destroy it. Good, right. So, so Aramio Vedavi. Good, right. So it could go either way. Either it's Avram's father, right? And that was the wandering Aramean, right? From that side of the world, Aram Narayim. Or it was Lavan, who in the rabbinic understanding is an idolater, where hell steals his idols, right? And he was the one. He was the idol worshiper who was trying to destroy my father. But either way, we're starting with idol worship. And it's in the Haggadah. Ushmuel Amar, in most texts it's Rava, which... Makes sense in, in just a second. Shmuel, who often debates Rav, says, Right? So this is the classic debate that shows up in the Haggadah that we're used to seeing, which is, is the move from idolatry to monotheism, or is the move from slavery to freedom? But as you can see, that's only one of a list of like 10 or 12 versions that you could go with. Okay? So, um, what's another way of viewing it? Let's look at the Rishalmi. Okay? Turn over to the to, to the Yushal. By the way, which do you like better? You like Rao better or Shmuel better? Which do you like better? Do you like the moving from idolatry to well? They don't even say what the Shevach is. By the way, you have to sort of fill in the blank. Okay, moving from idolatry to to the opposite of idolatry, or moving from slavery to to the opposite of slavery. What, what, you like Shmuel? Why? It just fits the you know the the uh, blessing that you say a little better. You know, because it goes into detail about God with a mighty arm, he took us out, he took, you know, it just seems to fit the text. It's more, more faithful to the text. Fight, and that's why somebody could read the mission and say, oh, obviously it's talking about two things. There's Gnud and Sheva, which is 
Shmuel, how he's reading the Mishnah, which is, Gunnar and Shabbat is clearly slavery to freedom, and then separately we're going to talk about this Aram Yobi and Abi story. But you're saying, if you read them con- connected, then Rav's position makes sense. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, you? So, I think it depends on who, who, you're, who you're teaching. Because I think the Yavadim answer answers the, the, the child, the, the simple questions of the one or I think the other answer answers the deeper questions of the four children. Oh, okay, so you're connecting to where they show up in the Haggadah. Yeah, the whole thing, you know, some friends of the Haggadah, you have Manishtana, which is the four questions, and then you have the answer. <laughs> is that like the title? And then it's Abadimayinu Lefarbizram. It's like, really? Like that? I mean, you can draw the connections, but it's not like the greatest answer. Meaning, it's, it's a li- it seems like, and as you see, obviously, Shmuel is bringing the answer not in relationship to the questions, per se. Um, but say he's answering a different question, which is, what is Ganut? Um, whereas the way it shows on the Gada is, well, I have all these questions that the father teaches the son, and the son asks, and then this shows up as the, as the answer, let's say, the next text. Um, but, but they may not, they, they don't, you don't have to read them as question and answer, even though you can. All right, let's just look at where it shows up in, in the Rishabim. So turn the page at the top of page three. Um, okay. Now, the nice thing about the Rishabim, so... Um, the Bhatli is like really into debating. Yushalmi doesn't shy away from debate, but Yushalmi is also okay with just bringing opinions, okay? And the problem with Yushalmi is it's not that we, uh, it's not that it's confusing in the way the Bhatli is, like which position are we fighting for now? It's just, as Bhatli said, it's not, it's not that we, um, it's not that it's confusing, it's just we don't understand what it says. <laughs> I mean, it's like totally corrupt text, so it's very hard to understand like what, what they're trying to get across. But let's just see. Here we have just one opinion. Whose opinion? Just Rav. Okay, so answering the same question that the Bobli asked, what is Gnut? Here we have Rav Amar, either Mitchila, but it seems to be corrected to Katchila, like in the beginning, as in the beginning. Be'ever hanar yashvu avotechem v'gomer, ve'akach et avichem et avraham me'ever hanar. Okay? Our ancestors dwelt beyond the river Euphrates, but I took your father Abraham from beyond the river Euphrates. Okay? Now we have a new text. This is not the text that we saw from Bikurim. This is not the text in Devarim. This is the text from Joshua. Right? What is the... Um, this is not the uh, Aramio Ben Avi is proving his point, but rather Be'ever Hanar Yashva Botecha. So what, do you, what is the Gerud and Sheva that Rab is arguing for here? What do you think? Okay, so it could be a geography thing, right? My ancestors were Me'ebra Nahar, and they came from across the river to um, the other side of the river. Who's that, by the way? When does the story begin and end, according to this? Abraham. Yeah, right? Abraham is the crossing. The geograph- this gets to, when do we get the land? Abraham gets the land, even though his descendants don't get it until later. Right? This is the, the you know... Uh, Everything is a foreshadow of the thing that's coming later, right? So in some ways, Abraham, his family is from across the river, not the Nile River, the other, the, the other river, but he's brought to the central land location. The whole story is over by the time you get to Lechata, right? Not talking about Pesach at all, right? You could celebrate this whenever you want, or whenever that was supposed to happen, right? But it's not related to the story of Mitzrayim at all. That's not what we're talking about on the night of Pesach. According to Rav, any other beginning and end point you, you want to say? So there's the may ever. 
There's the geography side of it, yeah? Could be before God had like a specific contract with a certain people. Good, right? It was back then, nobody had a special relationship with God. And now, once God t- takes your Avichem, your father, let's say, Abraham, now, or maybe it's father, well, whatever. It's interesting, because Abraham just finishes the journey that his father begins. And they, get, they get sort of waylaid on a, at a rest stop for a few years. But um, the point is that God is connecting to one person. And that might be it. Right? The beginning is no connection to God, and the other side is I have a special religion. I'm taking that person somewhere. Right? Any other ways you could you could see this playing out? Yeah. Well, if it's talking about covenant, which maybe he already assumes that covenant means Matan Torah at the end of the story. Ah, okay, good. Right? What's the um, what is the um, what is the beginning and end point? If you read the full text in Joshua, that Joshua text doesn't just end at this verse, but it goes on until. They get the covenant, they get the land. The whole thing is sort of, you know, spelled out there in greater detail, which might end at, at a different point. Okay, so now, Rav has two positions, right? One of them is in the Bavli, which is to say, in the beginning, we were idol worshippers. And one in the Yerushalmi is, in the beginning, our ancestors were over here, which might be the same as we were idol worshippers, because they were idol worshippers over there, but you don't have to read it that way. So you, you can see the way in which Rav is understood in the Bavli as perhaps... Just one interpretation of Rav as, as brought here in the Yushalmi. Rav is bringing you a pasuk, but the pasuk itself can be read in different ways. Okay? Now what's missing is anybody debating with Rav. Now why do you think Shmuel, or in most manuscripts, Rava, so Shmuel is a contemporary of Rav, and it makes sense for them to be fighting. Rava is like a few generations later than Rav. Okay? So why, why, why would Rava, or Shmuel, bring the opposite idea of, no, the beginning is slavery and the end is freedom. Well, it doesn't say the end, but you could, you could add that in. Why would you shift from idolatry or me'ever hanahar to slavery? Again, Yerushalmi and Yerushalmi's Haggadah. And this is true, by the way. When they found the Haggadot that come from Eretz Yisrael in the Geniza, there was no Shmuel opinion. There's no Abadim Hayinu. That ditty is gone. Okay? Not there. What they, all they have is the Rav opinion. So why would someone come and bring a Shmuel or a Rava opinion that it is Abadim Ayinu and moving to freedom? Otherwise there's no connection with Pesach. Sorry? Otherwise there's no connection with Pesach. Right, okay. So one thing is like, come on! Sports and this is like, I checked the calendar last time I checked. It was memorials like a specific, specific act. It doesn't do with Abraham's leaving. Um, but actually had to do with this exodus. Why else? Why in Babel do you want to have slavery to freedom as opposed to Rav's conception? Where does Rav... In exile. Yeah, right? If Rav says, I move you from Meheber Nahar and now I bring you to this land, or the end of the parashah of Aramio Ve'ravi, which is, and then I brought you to this land, if you're sitting in Iraq, kind of, kind of a little bummer, right? Like you're telling the story, but then it's like, oh yeah, we're not there. Right? We're actually back on that other side of the Nahar. Okay? So you could imagine... Now, we don't know. It's not, not necessarily the case, but, but you could imagine that would be motivating somebody to say, oh, I want to tell the story differently. I want to tell the story with a, not a geographical endpoint, but with a, um, with, a, with a... Or, I guess, a geographical starting point, slavery, but you're, you're on the other side of the story when you walk out of Mitzrayim, as opposed to when you get to the other side. Okay? Now, you don't have to argue that way, because we, we all tell stories of places that we aren't in. That's the Messiah ending here, right? Um, okay, now we're ready for Dayinu. Are we ready for Dayinu? 
We're so ready for a dayenu. By the way, just to, 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 bring, to bring the point home, what I want to say is, how do we start out the Haggadah? What, what does the Magid section start with? Halach Ma'anya. Okay, now, let's look at Halach Ma'anya just as a lens of Gnut Tesheva. Halach Ma'anya, V'achalu Abatana, Merad Mitzrayim. Okay? So this is the bread of affliction that our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. Then what do we say? Right. Everybody who is in need, come and eat. Anybody who needs, come and eat the Pesach. What's that? That's your Gnur Tesheva. Right? Ger, we started as the bread of affliction. We were being afflicted. Now we take the bread that we have, the bounty that we have, and we give it out here. That is to say, it's Arami Obedavi. Okay? Right? That's the, the, the end of the parasha when I'm feeding the ger. Okay? That's one way, yeah? Well, also, Halach Ma'anya, I've heard read as a negative text because the fact that we can say that means that it's no longer the time of the Bina Mikdash where you, could actu- where you actually have to know exactly how many people were eating the Ah, bread. okay. Maybe it's so a it reflective be, of our it sin. It could be actually a low point, meaning like we're here like a, not having the actual Pesach offering and eventually, maybe, you know, maybe it's starting its own. Okay, good. So, so, so that leads to the second part of Halach Ma'anya, because what comes next? This year we're here. Right? That is the beginning and end point of we're in exile, and in the future we're going to be in Eretz Yisrael. And that's exactly the same that we saw in the Bikurim section, except that instead of past to present, it's present to future. Right? There's your Messiah. And what else is it? Hashata Avdei, right? L'shanaba b'nei chorim. Now we are slaves, next year we are free. That is to say, Rav and Shmuel are right there in Alephania, right? The first one is, I'm starting at a particular place. Um, um, uh, um, now we're here, next year we're going to the land of Israel, which is Rav and Yerushalmi. Certainly you can read it that way. And the other one is Shmuel. Or Rabbi, where you started this year, we're slaves, next year we're going to be free. But it's, it's just taking the past to present and making present the future. So an argument that Halak Ma'anya, but, but, which also doesn't show up in Eretz Yisrael, it's in Aramaic, okay? But it's, it is trying to signal to you that we're going to be telling the story of Gnut Tesheva in multiple ways. And even in these three sentences, I've already given you three ways to tell the story, okay? So that's like a hint that I'm, I'm taking of, this is the challenge of Agada. How do you tell the story? Each beginning has a different ending point. And you, and you don't have to choose. That's the amazing thing, right? You don't have to decide one answer. This is actually the kind of, kind of amazing thing. The riff, the, the first um, sort of major organizer of, of Halachot from the Talmud, reads it straight through, picks out the Halachot and says, here's what we follow. His whole job is to say, oh, Rav versus Shmuel, I know who to choose. Right? We pick Rav for all the uh, Israel Hetters, Rav for all the ritual stuff, and Shmuel for all the civil laws. So it should have been that we just have Rav in our Haggadah. But you know what the riff says? He says, you know what? We're going to do them both. That is, a, like, I could be a postsake if that's how you'd be a postsake. It's like, <laughs> what do you do? We do no, no, no need to choose. Just do them both. Okay? And that's why the Haggadah gets longer. Because we're not choosing Rav versus Shmuel. Actually, the point of the Haggadah is to say them both. Alright? That's how, that's how it's playing out. Now let's go to Dayenu. Okay, Dayenu, which is towards the end of Magi. What I'm going to ask you to do, because it's so hot in here, um, is to take a look at page 3. Um, and the, I brought to you the Haggadah, the Dayenu text. Now you'll notice it's a poem followed by a prose. Okay, there's a whole debate about 
which came first and say was one expand the other. We can get into that if you want. What I want you to do is to actually take the time while you did. Everyone, did most people eat before they came here? You're good. Anyone drunk? Okay. In this state, we're gonna now look at Zayenu, where we have a little bit of time. We can just relax our way through it. You don't have to rush to have the brisket. It's just here for us to spend some time with. I'm gonna ask you to read Zayenu, and what I'm gonna ask you to do is what I ask you to do when you read any text is. Come up with any questions, like things that you notice that are strange, or some questions that I have. And what is the way in which Dayenu is trying to answer the question, Gnu Tesheva? Okay? How is, what is Dayenu's take on Gnu Tesheva? Okay? So let's just spend like seven minutes or so reading this with a neighbor. Okay? So you're going to read it out loud. You're going to ask questions about it, and any way in which you can identify Gnu Tesheva, on the three and four. Good? Uh, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at a little bit of what is the Knud and Shevach of Zayin and what else you notice. And I want to also touch on what was raised in some of the coverages of Zayinu. Really? <laughs> like, really it would have been enough? Can we, like, understand potentially other ways to, 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 to relate to that word? Okay, and we'll look at a couple other ways in which Zayinu is used in rabbinic literature to try to at least to open that up a little bit. Okay, what did you notice in terms of, of Dayenu, either um, in reference to our question of Gnut to Sheva, from, from disgrace or shame to, um, to praise, versus, uh, or, or anything else that, 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 that sort of struck you? Yeah. Well, at my Chavut department, lovely woman whose name I don't really know, <laughs> bonus points, <laughs> pointed out something that just never really hit me, and that is that, you know, we read this whole thing, and then you get to the very last line, the Chavera our call up on and what a come down, like what a, <laughs> it brings you right back down to, you know, earth, like we're on this, you know. And that's not in the song, that's only in the prose. Correct, right, only in the prose version, but the very, if you didn't get through it, so just let's just take a look at it, because it's uh, worth noting, on the bottom of, uh, of, the, of the prose part on, on, on page four, um, uh, what happened? Brought us into the land, built us Beit HaBechira, um, the, 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 the house of choosing, let's say the place where God chooses to um, have God's name dwell. L'chaper al to offer atonement for all of our sins, right? It's a, it's a little bit of a downer. And if you're, if you're, if you're seeing it, well, what, what else does that bring into the picture when you have the avonot? Yeah, okay, so, so, so one potential way is like galut, exile, is, is one way in which, which our, our, because of our many sins, we are living in galut. And I think even just a, a calendrical association we don't often make is the relationship between Pesach and Yom Kippur. Right? That is to say, yeah, so what did you say about it? What's I said getting ready for Yom Kippur. Getting ready for Yom Kippur. It's like, it's not enough, you have to clean. You also got to, okay, so, so yeah. um, you're left at the end of the song as the purpose of where we're getting to, the, the purpose of the Sheva, of getting to the temple in Eretz Yisrael, is because the temple is the thing that can do atonement for our unending sins. Or maybe to put it another way, it's sort of what John was pointing out of, the opposite of the sale of Yosef is the Ten Martyrs, which is also sort of a Yom Kippur association. But that's part, partly what we're playing out here. Or to think about it another way, how is, if the, um, maybe our sins is the Gnut, and our Shevach is the Kapara, right? The, the, in what way is Pesach sort of an atonement holiday? In what way, you know, it says that the, the Jewish people were down at the 49th level of sin. If they got one more level down, then they would have been irredeemable. 
Right? So Pesach is also a marking of super sin. These people were like the worst sinners, and they were able to move from a state of Avon to the state of Kapara, which is something we usually associate with Yom Kippur. Yeah. Um, yeah. The thing that really struck me and that we spent a little time talking about is that at each level, the Gnut, the Shevach from the previous cycle uh, becomes the Gnut of the next cycle. Amazing. And it's partly also, like with what you were just saying, in the lower levels, like in the earlier part of Dayenu, both the Shevach and the Gnut look pretty bad. And then towards the end, both of them aren't that bad. Yeah. So there's like this whole, and and then it also is like an interesting thought about how we can't leap from here to here. We actually have to travel in these incremental steps. Good, right? They're, 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 what you're pointing out is that you could have just said, as Shmuel said, right? Avadim Hayinu. We started off as slaves, and we made it to the end. You pick your end point, right? Beda Bechira, or Misham, or whatever it is. But here, it's they're spelling out every single step, and your theory is, if I'm understanding correctly, is that. What used to be, in the moment that I experienced that Sheva, that Sheva then becomes the next Gnut when I experience the next Sheva. Right. I don't even realize that what I'm experiencing as Sheva is actually um, a disgraceful state of being compared to what I'm about to experience. Which might be connected to the Dayenu idea. It's like, it's not necessarily like, it would have been enough, because it wouldn't have been enough. Someone saying that the New Yorker cartoon of like, it would have been, you know, Dayenu, and, and um, if you hadn't given us the Torah, you know, but just brought us to our Sinai, and the cartoon has everybody standing up in the mountain and going, whoa. You know, but, like, but nothing happened, you know. So it's like, well, no, it wouldn't have been enough, right? But, the, but, 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 but there's a sense of like, but in that moment, you experience that as like the peak of your, you know, religious life. And then you move and realize how that was actually just a gnut. Like, it wasn't even like medium. It was like a disgrace. And therefore, Dayenu is not just one answer to the question, but over and over and over. Right? Anyone count? 15. 15 or 16. 15 or 16, right? Depending on how you count, right? So, Kamamalot Tovot. Now, um, what's the connection between Malot and 15? 15 steps on the, te- on the temple, right, that moves you into the, the next platform, which is also related to Shira Malot, the 15 songs of ascent that are going Kamamalot Tovot, the 15 songs uh, in, in the book of Psalms that the Levim were saying as they were presumably moving up, up the steps. And I think there's something sort of blared to what you're, what you're pointing out. It's like, those steps are not um, square. They're rounded. Which I think also gives some sense of, there's, I don't know, there, there's something encompassing about it. When you're on your, your step, you feel like you've got the whole thing, and then you move up to the next step, you don't realize how, you know, how uh, uh, the new world, or, you know, they're living in a flat world, but still, you know, the idea of like, there's something encompassing you that, that is also um, playing out of the shape. Yeah. yeah the, the story of Diane is also from the time we get out of Egypt through through those 40 years. It doesn't talk about before Egypt, it, and it you know gets the beta here. So almost the, along those lines of incrementalism, that's specifically relevant to that stage of the journey. Right. Not going all the way back to when we were slaves. Good. We start from the beginning of the annual. It's when we got at you took us out of Egypt, we got that, and then it's that journey of that period of time. Good, right, and it picks again. We found that you could, you could run the, the timeline pretty far. You go all the way to the Messiah and start all the way back at Abraham Nahar, but this is taking a specific point, and interestingly, it doesn't start Makat Bechorot, or, or you know, we were sitting in Goshen. It was like this, we, the, the lowest point in the story is we, we were taken out of Egypt. So we, again, for Shmuel, it's like that's the highest point, but it's in Misham. 
but actually maybe it's the lowest point because, as Jess is pointing out, we were never really that good at practicing any of these things, like even from the moment we were, we were out of there. So maybe that is some sort of genuine, but you're saying it's like it starts here and it ends, um, it ends at the temple. Um, that's, it's picking points on that, on that spectrum that, 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 is, that is a wider spectrum. Other, yeah, things like that, yeah. Um, it seems also what you're saying about the rib has, uh not willing to choose one or two opinions, it seems like in Dayanu it's also dealing with both Abadim and also the, the going from idol worship to the people, where like it seems like a lot of the first, really, the first half where it's talking about actually leaving Egypt, and then it kind of transitions to talking about mana, oh, like we still would have had, we still would have been um, cared for, but also this mana, like this mystical extra thing in Shabbat, um, which isn't necessarily necessary, but it is to going through the more um, idol worship to, to God. Good, right. We're, we're talking about this coverage of like, well, what will be the significance between starting with slavery and starting with idol worship as like, as I'm playing this out? I think you can fill in the blanks with some of the points that you're, you're pointing to in, in, in Dayenu. Well, what is the difference? Like, what, if, if I say to you the core story of the Agada, remember, it wasn't like, nobody said, it's all true. They each had an opinion, right? So if, if you're lining up on the Shmuel Rava side of, well, actually, the worst part of, of, of the whole thing was when we were slaves, and the best part is when we got out. How is that different from, just experientially, how do you experience that as different from, I started off as an idol worshiper and I ended up serving the one true God, or I started off outside of the geographic bounds and I ended up inside the geographic bounds. What's the, what's, what, what's the significance of that, of that distinction, do you think? Then they're explained, so we have to just guess. Yeah. Well, Good, right. I think right. How much responsibility do we take for our state? If you're slaves, it's like, oh, evil Pharaoh. He's the one who's enslaving me. And then lucky for us, he got destroyed. But if you're an idol worshiper, then the agency is presumably with you, right? You have the ability to turn, turn that down. And I think also it relates to what Jeff was saying earlier, which is, it's a sign curve, right? Slavery and freedom is kind of like a, you know, it's like a one-shot move, sort of. I mean, there's a slave mentality, maybe. But it's, you know, it's, it's rare that you would be re-enslaved in the same lifetime, at least the story that they're playing out here. But idol worship, it's like, these guys, you know, every, every like, ten seconds, they're going back, to like, they're, like, wavering on that, which gets to the agency. It's like, if someone else is imposing slavery on you, take out that imposition, you're free. But if, but if you have to choose to, to worship uh, the one God, then you could be pretty, you know, wavery on that. Did you want to add? I don't know, just to, like, just what I just want to I agree that it's, like, a... <laughs> With Cypher, you think there is some... I think if you look at Jewish history and where the rabbis were, like, you know, in terms of what they were experiencing for the world around them, Correct, right. Maybe, maybe this narrative ends with, you know, with one, you, they don't go back to Mitzrayim. Oh, they, they desperately want to, but they don't go back to Mitzrayim. But the, the rabbi is saying, well, Achashverosh is still in charge. We're still slaves, you know, in, in, that, in that way. And you can equate spiritual slavery and all that stuff. You want to add? Yeah. Yes. I just wanted to add, when we read through it initially, I, 
we didn't really, or I certainly didn't really see much in the way of Ganut, um, because it was, I didn't see the sort of movement in the, the 15 movements. It was, things aren't so great, but now they're a little better. And things aren't so great, or, you know, would have been enough, but now it's a little better. But the serious Ganut, you didn't find that. But I didn't find the Ganut until, again, the last <coughs> line. And, then it, and so it felt like a reversal of the Interesting. movement uh-huh. that rather than starting with the Ganut and going to the, the uh, ship, Shiva, Shiva, uh, it was backwards that the Ganut appeared right at, at the end. It was a you with the sins. Sort of, yeah. Right. Although you're atoned for those of, sins. Of but why, this, why all the praise was necessary? Oh, because of all that sin. Uh-huh. Did you want to respond to that? Well, kind of, because when I was actually looking at these incidents more closely, and this might not be a good read, but all of them have like kind of a, a sins or bad incidents associated with them. Almost all of them, uh-huh. I can uh-huh. find. Like, even anything, like in the desert, we complained, like, and yeah. with the mana, we took two portions, right. we took literally right. every one, right, even like with the, with the, um, plagues, there's Midrash that, you know, half the Jews were killed, in the Dead Sea, more Jews were killed, like, there is kind of like a, a negative association with all of them, and then, um, I was thinking maybe, maybe that was like something that they are, like, that the readers of this would have known, and that when we tell this story, like that's what turns it into praise. Like the owner, the ownership of our shames and uh-huh. our movement, maybe, and then you know, and then it work, and then the atonement is kind of almost like a summary. Wow, it's like a, it's like a weird ashamnu, like an admission of sin. Yeah, in, in the way you're, you're yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. These are encoded well, listings. It, it, yeah, it's fake news, really, because <laughs> <laughs> if he had granted our presence and had not supplied our needs in the desert for forty years. The very first time he didn't supply our needs, when they didn't have water, right. literally a day or two after he drowned them, they immediately said, this sucks. Right, <laughs> right, right, that's right, yeah. that's right, right. right. It's not like God built the temple. I mean, Shlomo built it. Right, well, yes. Uh, Shlomo gives some credit. For the Mishnah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's not like, you know, Mibana Manu. Like, right, it's not, not, not entire, it didn't fall out of the sky. But uh, it's like, this is so, the way we're looking at it, oh, this is enough, is so vastly different from that, how the people at the time felt. That's right. ironic. Right. Okay, good. Well, I do want to spend, it is a fascinating read, by the way. I love, love that you put that out there. Um, sort of like the inverse of the positive read that Blair has in some ways, where each one is Sheva. Um, I want to look just for a second at the, at the Dayenu, how, how else Dayenu is used. Also gets to the, the inverse, we have an inversion of Dayenu in, in, in one Midrash, which is, which is worth looking at. And then I'll make just one last comment about Shabbat, and then we can all go home and cool off. So um, <laughs> if, you, if you flip over to, um, um, let's see, we're going to look at page um, 8 at the bottom. Um, by the way, I just can't, 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 um, can't resist. Look at the bottom of page 7. There's a theory that Dayenu was uh, in opposition to an anti-Semitic um, uh, sermon that was given on Good Friday, Good Friday by, by one of the early church fathers. And it goes like this on the bottom of page 7. Israel the ungrateful. I didn't bring it to you in the original um, Greek. How much did you value the ten plagues? How much did you value the nightly pillar and the daily cloud and the crossing of the Red Sea? How much did you value the giving of the manna from heaven and the supply of water from a rock and the giving of the Torah at Horeb and the inheritance of the land? Like all these rebellions at these moments of amazing miracles and the sort of the, the Christian preacher pointing out like Israel is terribly ungrateful, yeah. right? And Dayenu being the inverse of that, although maybe in your read not the inverse, or you know, in other words, 
he could see it in Dayenu. So there's a, a scholarly debate about which came first. Um, there is one scholar who thinks that um, that is a reaction to this, but most people think it's just they're both versions of, you can pick psalms in which you, you can play this out. <laughs> the, the, the Bible doesn't, um, the ADL wouldn't, wouldn't support the Bible's view of the Jews. What, so, what about the idea that this was taken from Dainu? Right, so, so that's another possibility, is that he, he knows Dainu. Because some people think Dainu is very, very old, because it ends with going to the temple and Mechaper al Kolobonotenu, so maybe it's like, and they were saying that, and they would walk up the 15 steps and all that stuff, but then people say, no, it could be, because it's never, you never see it in any literature before stuff that's been up at Right, exactly. It doesn't show up before, um, before the Talmud. Um, it's, not, it's not in the Talmud. Well, let's just look, look at two uses of Dayenu that you see in rabbinic literature on the bottom of page 8. So, um, so one is um, uh, this Midrash here um, about Moshe, and, and the question is, is it possible that Moshe couldn't judge Israel? This is like the, um, the, the recap of the story of Yitro, where Moshe is like taking too much on, and Yitro says, you've got to break up the, the people um, so that you're not judging all of them. And the Midrash says, well, of course Moshe could have done it. Moshe, it wasn't like, oh, Moshe, like, you know, the, the, the manager's, you know, understanding of the Torah, it's like, Torah's really about delegating, right? But it's like, the, the Midrash says, well, of course Moshe could have judged Israel. After all, Adam shehotziami mitzrayim, wasn't he able to do it? Now, you may... Maybe you want to read this as Dayenu, as related to Dayan. That's a pretty much of a stretch. But it is striking that you have some idea of this is like another litany of things that, like Moshe. Now it's Moshe who's running this here. Right? So that's one possible source or, or re- related text. But the one that I wanted to focus on was, um, um, was, was the next one, which is um, the inverse of Dayenu. Um, uh, sorry, then we'll, we'll look at one more. So this is the inverse. This is the, what if they took our language and used it against us? So, it, so on the top page nine, they said, the Egyptians said, if we had been plagued without letting them go, which is like another one way of saying, it would have been enough, right? And if we had been plagued and let them go, um, but without our money being taken, but we were plagued and let them go, and our money was taken, right? So you have like the reverse side of this is like the Egyptians saying, wouldn't it have been enough if you had just like stopped with the plague? Did you have to do this and this and this, right? It would have been enough. We would just suffer this, right? So you have like sort of the, the inverse, um, the inverse side of it. Um, but the, but the one that really strikes me is if you go back to page eight and um, um, a, a beautiful midrash with this will end um, is uh, is trying to figure out this weird phrase that comes in Malachi ad bli die. Okay, so the sentence reads like this. Number 10 on page 8. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Let there be food in my house. And thus put me to the test, said the Lord of hosts. I will surely open the floodgates of the sky for you and pour down blessings on you. Adli dai. I'm going to... Um, uh, I'm going to open up the, 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 the storehouses of the sky. Barikoti lachem bracha adli dai. Bracha that has no end. Or literally, until without... Enough. Okay? 
So now they're trying to understand this. And the, and the, the Midrash says, what is Adlidai? Rabbi Yonah, Rabbi Shimon Barba, in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, something which you cannot ever say enough about, that is a blessing. Right? Davar she'i lomar alav dai, hu bracha. Bracha Adlidai. So one thing is, a blessing is something that you can never say die. They say, a blessing is th- something where you could never fully understand how it impacts you. It's overflowing. You could never describe it in words. Which I think is part of the experience of Dayenu. Like you're saying again and again, there's more and there's more and there's more. I'm giving more testimony to a blessing, but you could never really stop saying it. Or you could keep on going. You could, always, you could start it earlier. Right? There's no end to it. But this is where they, they actually relate more to the Dayenu. Um, another opinion Rabbi Brechner, Rabbi Chalba, Rabbi Abba, Bar Eli said in the name of Ra, until their lips wore out from saying, Dayenu Brachot, Dayenu Brachot. Adli Dai, their lips, Adshi Yiblu, Adbli, until their, their lips wore out from saying, Dayenu Brachot, Dayenu Brachot. It's also repetitive in the same way that the Dayenu repeated. So I think there's something where, like, you could read Dayenu literally as it would have been enough, but, like, not really it would have been enough, but also just as a way of saying blessing. Like, I am so blessed, right? Like, it's like Dayenu and Bracha are somehow connected in this, in this Midrash, right? Dayenu, it's like so much blessing, so much blessing, which I think gets to, like, the, the core interpretive problem of, like, well, what do you mean it would have been enough? Like, practically wouldn't have been enough. But it's some, like, other way of saying, like, Hodu, or, you know, some other, like, litany word where you're saying over and over again, we're, we're blessed. Um, so, I don't think we totally figured out that, you know, but, uh, in terms of, like, what, what that problem is. But I think my general point is, Dayenu is another version, another moment in the Haggadah where the Haggadah is trying to figure out, going from Ganut to Sheva, how do we do that? And the last part I want to, which all of these are a part of, and in your Seder, you can pick any of these to talk about which one works for you, which one is meaningful for you, which one doesn't work for you. The last part I want to, I want to close with is to say, where's the Shevach mentioned in the Haggadah? Right, we have the Genut of Abadim Hayinu or Mikhila. Where's the root Shevach mentioned in the Haggadah? That we know of. Okay, right, Yishabah, Tishbachot. So one of it is just the praise experience of saying Hallel at the end. And that's, by the way, where state of Genut is not even the same as Shev- Genut is a state, Shevach is an act. They're not even really opposites, right? It's, it's, it's sort of like, this is what is acted on me, this is what I, I become an agent over here. And what's the other place where Shevach shows up in the Haggadah? Kol Mishubah. Whoever increases in telling the story of the Haggadah, uh, of going out of Egypt, is Harezeh Mishubah, is Shevach. That is to say, <laughs> I think the Haggadah is trying to let us enact what it means to be the opposite of Gnut. Or to say, when you tell a story over and over again, you actually are living the opposite of shame and disgrace. You're having agency around all the telling. And that's why it's called the Haggadah. And that's why it is the main mitzvah that we're trying to do that night, is to tell. Because when you own a story, or when there are possible multiple stories, then you are free. Because when, you are, when you're a slave, someone else tells your story. But when you're free, you get to tell your own story. And that story has multiple different frames. And I think part of our project on Seder night is to engage in the act of telling these different frames.